Hey, Annie, guess what? What? We just launched a business of biotech newsletter. Yeah? Yeah. I know what you're thinking. What am I thinking? We don't need another newsletter. Yeah, I might have been thinking that. Annie, I swear on my grandpa's grave, you're going to like this newsletter. That's a pretty bold swear, Matt. Uh, Hear me out. It's monthly, only once a month. It's ad-free, and it's modeled after the Business of Biotech podcast. It's got the same insight from the builders of biotech that you see in the podcast. So what's not to like? That actually sounds like it doesn't suck. Pretty high praise, Annie. Check it out, bioprocessonline.com backslash B-O-B. Go there and sign up for this newsletter. You won't regret it. Welcome back to the Business of Biotech. I'm Matt Piller, and on today's show, I'm talking with the Brothers Chan out of New Jersey. That is Ian Chan, CEO, and Dr. Eugene Chan, chairman and both co-founders of ABPRO. ABPRO is a clinical stage biopharma on the move. Having recently inked a deal with Celtrion that could be worth a cool $1.75 billion, that deal should come as no surprise given that the Chans are leading a company that's tirelessly advancing a very deep pipeline of antibodies designed to address infectious disease, immuno-oncology, and ophthalmology. On today's episode, we're going to learn what drives Ian and Eugene, the value and strategy behind their deep and multi-indication pipeline, and maybe even gain some insight into how to strike a multi-billion dollar deal. Ian and Eugene, welcome to the show. Thank you, Matt. It's great to be here. Hey, Matt. Great to meet you. Yeah, great to have you guys on the show. I appreciate it. So uh, as I said, AdPro is a, is a company on the move, and we're going to talk about what's moving the company. Um, but before we do, I am Super intrigued about the fact that Ian and Eugene are brothers, and I want to learn a little bit more about that. Uh, I want to learn about the origins of the, of the of the of the story, how you guys got together uh, to form a company. Obviously, you know, you you spent quite a bit of time together. Um, so, so, so to back up just for a minute before we move forward, uh, how do two brothers, one Ian, a Brown University econ finance guy, am I correct? Or like any, what, what was your yeah, it was a double bio, a major biology economics uh, pre pre medical track. Yeah. Okay. Yep. And so at Brown, and then uh, Harvard MBA, right? Yeah. Yes. Yep. And the other uh, Harvard MD, Eugene. You're a Harvard MD, correct? That is correct. Yeah. So how how do these two how do these two brothers and these two uh, two different roles come together to form a biopharma company? Yeah. I mean, I think they're. Complementary skill sets. I think our our broader mission in life is to really find a way to treat patients and deliver medicine. And Eugene went through through the medical uh, school route, and then we noticed that biotech could be potentially a great way to deliver medicine on a really broad scale uh, around around the around the globe. So, and then in a biotech, you obviously need both skill sets. You need someone who knows the technology. The science really well. So that's what Eugene has been able to uh, bring to the table. And at the same time, you need the business side as well, since it's a, obviously a company. So those are complementary skill sets. And it also fit the mission of uh, what we wanted to do, which was to deliver medicine to patients in need. So was, was ABPRO uh, iteration number one of your entrepreneurial partnership? Or, or is there is there is there a deeper story to that? Like, how did you, how did you guys come together initially in in a business sense? Yeah, so so this is our second iteration. Mm. Uh, so early on, uh, we started one of the first high speed sequencing companies in the industry. So that was two years out of undergrad. So Eugene basically came up with a technology that could sequence genomes much faster. And that was our start in biotech. So we, we launched a company in that space and it became one of the leaders in uh, what was called single molecule sequencing, uh, being able to read DNA and get sequences much faster. Eugene, why, why didn't you, so having your, your uh, Harvard uh, MD, why, why did you choose industry versus practicing medicine? Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. So there's always this kind of restless energy to kind of make and build things. Um, and I think uh, there's, um, you know, particularly for me, really was how do you actually kind of create innovations and inventions that can have a visible impact on medicine. And so 
medicine is more sort of a direct practice and treatment of patients. Um, and so really, it's really kind of looking for a different kind of outlet to explore that uh, kind of creative side. Um, and so ultimately, my MD was actually from Harvard and MIT, uh, which is well suited because ultimately, MIT builds stuff and medicine is uh, there to treat patients. Mm-hmm. So really kind of takes that kind of, uh, you know, dual background and uh, then kind of joins what generally is actually pretty kind of uh, separate worlds. And so now you have the engineering world beating medicine, um, which is uh, really kind of intensely kind of steeped in um, how do you actually improve patient care and how do you actually treat patients better? And so the whole point of APRO is how do we actually create these uh, wonderful molecules uh, called antibodies, you know, particularly in our case, bispecific antibodies that uh, allow us to treat different types of diseases better and really kind of taking that kind of deep kind of biochemical uh, background, you know, I, you know, when we say the nerdy geeky, geeky stuff and really kind of injecting this uh, directly into uh, how do you actually transform uh, lives of patients? Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of the transformation of patient lives, I understand, uh, uh, as, as I mentioned from the outset, APRO's immuno-oncology assets, I think uh, uh, across the pipeline, it's multi-indication, but across the pipeline, I think immuno-oncology is where you're, where you're deepest from a candidate perspective. Um, and I and I understand that there's more to that than just market opportunity or or, or science. I understand you guys had a personal uh, experience with cancer in your family. So I, I'm I'm curious, and either one of you can jump into this, uh, whichever one you choose. I'm curious about that, how that kind of motivated um, your intent to apply. You know, at Eugene, as I asked, why you know why why'd you start a, a biopharma company versus practicing? Ian, why did you decide you were gonna, you know, start a biopharma company versus become a venture capitalist or you know work, work uh, in the in the analyst community? How, how did your personal experience with with cancer uh, play into the motivation to to build Abpro? Yeah, so uh, our mom had she, she got breast cancer uh, a few years ago, um, so that was definitely deeply personal. And we saw her go through all the different types of treatments. Uh, the treatments seemed pretty uh, archaic at the time. So things like radiation, surgery, uh, chemo. And at the same time, we realized that with antibodies, you can actually go directly potentially to the tumors themselves in a very specific way. Um, so we realized that it's really time to push oncology treatments to the next level. So we're going directly after the tumors in a very specific way, and antibodies are a great way to do that. So that was a very deep motivation for us to really enter the, enter the space, especially the immuno-oncology space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Eugene, how's your mom doing now? Mom's doing great. And I think, you know, unfortunately for others, um, you know, they haven't been as lucky. Uh, so I think in, in the case of our mom, you know, it was picked up early uh, because basically she interfaces with the medical system for early detection screening way more than most other folks would. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, I think there's a general misconception about um, cancer and basically how we're doing against cancer. You know, we have new therapies, but at the same time, you know, it might prolong life by about like six months or something like that. So we're not nearly making as much progress as we need to, or as we could be, you know, with some of these new novel technologies that we've developed uh, particularly with some of these uh, new T cell engagers uh, that uh, basically essentially tickle the immune system to basically now harness your body's immune system to fight cancer. And being able to access some of these tools uh, really could be making the difference between six months, you know, to m- a much longer period of time. Yeah. 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 We'll get into that. We'll, we'll, we'll get into some of those technologies and the, uh, the, the play at ABPRO. Um, but before we shift in, into the real you know, propeller head kind of, as Eugene's put it, geeky stuff. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm not done asking you questions about your brotherhood. <laughs> I, uh, I can only imagine uh, that if I decided to launch a business with my sibling, uh, it would have advantages and it would have inherent disadvantages. So I just want a little bit of color on that. What is, you know, and, and a few weeks ago on this show, we had, uh, I had uh, a guy who, Dario Neri, the founder and uh, CEO, CMO, can't remember, of, of Philogen, who founded his, his company with his three, there were three brothers who founded this company way back when. 
Um, and he's, he shared a little bit on this, right? So what are the, I guess, advantages and what are maybe some of the disadvantages of running a, a, a startup business with your, with your brother, with your sibling? That, I'm going to see which one of you is most eager to respond to this question. <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, I can take a shot. I, mean, uh, I think the advantage is you have uh, a trusted partner, right? Someone you know very well, uh, you know, someone with <laughs> certainly a long history, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and someone that you know you can work well with. So so I think that's a huge advantage, and especially if they're complementary skill sets, especially in our case where we don't overlap. There's an, there's an obvious uh separation of duties, if you will. So you're not mm-hmm. stepping on each other's toes. So Eugene has been great with the technology and the science. Uh, and then logically, I'll, I'll, get, I'll get the business science since that's my background. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that can be quite a powerful combination. Uh, the challenge is you, you end up talking about business quite a bit, right? <laughs> oh. So it's it's sometimes can be uh, a bit more difficult to turn off, right? At family gatherings or whatnot. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm not sure if that would be more, probably most challenging for the family, right? Like the people around you, like you're sitting at the Thanksgiving table and you're, you're talking about your next, uh, you know, your a series C or something along those lines. And everyone's like, Hey, Ian, Eugene, come back to us. Right. Yeah. There can be some of that. Yeah. It's, it's tough to turn off. Yeah. Eugene, yeah. what's your, what's your perspective yeah, on that? It's, it's more like an effective team dynamic. I think that's, you know, when I look at kind of building teams, um, you know, hey, you want to get that complementary expertise. You know, it's almost, you know, like the marriage example in some ways, you know, you want someone who's complementary, you know, to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so here in this case, it was pretty natural and it was kind of a good thing that you didn't, be, didn't become a doctor. Um, I think the, the also kind of the deeper side of it as well is, you know, there's also all these kind of um, kind of cues, you know, that you can kind of decipher, you know, without even, even saying anything that I know exactly, basically, you know, how to interpret it and basically how to meld it into, uh, you know, direction of the company or, you know, you know, sort of, you know, creating a better working uh, team, you know, stuff like that. And so, um, and it kind of helps, you know, from growing up, you know, we've lived, I think, uh, you know, I think over 20 years together, you know, in the same room. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, just to, you know, not have that normal cordial professional relationship um, at some points, you know, basically, you know, Ian probably put me in a headlock and kind of beat me up a little bit. At some point, you know, we were probably, you know, really nice to each other. Um, and just kind of understanding a whole breadth of dynamics, you know, really kind of allows you to kind of tackle challenges together more easily. And I think uh, one of the challenges that today, kind of building teams is, you know, you've got everyone's like really cordial and professional and stuff like that. But, you know, sometimes you have to be able to voice your opinion and be able to kind of resolve conflicts. Um mm-hmm. Not that I think we've gotten, uh, you know, really kind of streamlined over time, you know, where there's actually not really, you know, believe it or not, not a lot of conflicts between me and Ian. But, you know, I think those early childhood interactions kind of worked it all out. And so by the time, uh, you know, we started together to work on the company, uh, it really kind of became natural and, and easy. And, you know, it's actually great to have a great partner. Yeah. No, that's outstanding. Yeah. I mean, cause you know, I come into that question. It's a, it's a loaded question because I come into it like, you know, I know, uh, I know that you guys are both born and raised in Jersey and your brother. So the perception is like, you guys have a disagreement, like, uh, you know, Eugene says, Hey, we got to spend money on this assay. And Ian says, we don't have the money for that assay. And Eugene says, we're spending the money on this assay. And next thing you know, you're throwing each other around the living room. And like you said, putting each other in headlocks. I didn't know if that was <laughs> the dynamic or not. Although I can tell you, um, Eugene, based on what you just said, sort of the un, the, uh, the the ability to read one another without words, that could probably be a dangerous weapon for you two, like at the negotiating table, right? You can just look at each other and anticipate each other's next move. It kind of is like that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Very cool. So uh, when you when you launched Ab Pro, I guess the, the at the highest level, the natural question is, you know, why antibodies? You've got, as you said, complementary skills, uh, you know, deep, deep academic experience at, at, at Brown and Harvard at MIT. Uh, you could probably launch a biopharma company and get financial backing to go in any direction you want to. Why, why antibodies? Yeah. Uh, so when we launched the company, we noticed that there were a lot of new targets post the human genome project. Uh, at the same time, antibodies are the most natural way of fighting disease. So it's created with our own, own immune system. But at the same time, creating a 
simple anybody when we launched a company was taking on average one to two years. Mm. So, so in order to really go after all these targets, that time frame was simply too long. So that's so. So we built our uh, an anybody platform to be able to streamline that entire process to reduce the time frame to generate an anybody down to as little as two to three months, mm. so that we could really create novel antibodies against traditionally difficult targets at an industry leading speeds. So, and we saw antibodies as a very natural, very effective, produced by the human and immune system, you know, and very safe. Uh, and with a lot of different potential opportunities to treat disease. So, so that was really the genesis of the company. So we had great traction with the platform, the diverse immune platform. Uh, it's been used in almost 300 different campaigns uh, during the early years of the, of the life of the company with some of the biggest names in the industry, most, most large pharma companies uh, work with us, biotechs. We got multiple key publications in uh, journals like New England Journal of Medicine, Nature to really prove everything out, and then it turned out that antibodies uh, have continued to be one of the largest treatment modalities in biotech t- today. So in the last few years, we've seen checkpoint inhibitors come out, uh, infectious disease antibodies now in cocktails such as COVID neutralizing antibodies as well. Mm-hmm. So, so we we see this as a great modality that's natural. Uh, and it can be used to treat a lot of different patients in different types of disease areas. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to, I'm going to ask some questions for you around the, you know, some of the specific uh, indications and combinations and indications like COVID. Um, but you mentioned, uh, you know, part of the motivation of the company being to change the speed of development and manufacturing paradigm. And I don't anticipate or expect you to give me, you know, any, any, trade secrets or spill the secret sauce, but can you give me some indication as to when you launched the company, you said, you know, hey, we want to be able to take this multi-year development paradigm and, and, and make it a lot faster, create, you know, some, some faster iterations. Can you give me some uh, insight into what, I don't know, approach, technology, process, knowledge uh, you, you thought you had that gave you the confidence to, to do that? Yeah, sure. I think, yeah, I can comment about that. Um, you know, the crux of, uh, you know, the approach is really be able to shorten this whole antibody generation process. So once you actually have a target, you know, it traditionally takes, you know, 12, 18 months to be able to do this. And so, and that's actually just to be able to get a hit. And so getting hits, you know, you need multiple hits in order to do, to be able to, you know, basically siphon down that funnel uh, to be able to get that one single uh, drug candidate that's going to go to clinical trials. So it's not really the more hits you have, the more likely that you are going to be able to uh, be successful. So in our case, it was not about generating these hits quickly with the antibodies. You know, so now we, we basically now condense the time frame down to three to six months, but also be able to generate sort of high quality hits, uh, which essentially uh, was able to bind to the targets better and also to bind to more diverse targets uh, that basically had smaller, minor changes. So in terms of uh, kind of more kind of scientific speak, um, you know, some of these targets are also uh, confirmational. So, uh, you know, a lot of the, you know, so there's a certain 3D structure uh, to these particular targets and you have to be able to capture that specific 3D structure as well as, you know, small changes in the amino acid, uh, you know, sequence. So it might be a single amino acid. It might be a single glycosylation, you know, difference and being able to tie it target these minor differences and be able to do it quickly and also be able to get sort of high binding uh, or essentially a high quality hit to the target. Uh, it really kind of allows you to move down that pipeline way quicker than um, anyone else could possibly move down. Mm-hmm. That kind of is uh, reflected in some of the uh, kind of high quality partnerships. You know, some of these companies that have seen these, uh, you know, basically what we can do, you know, they've kind of signed up to basically, you know, look for new drugs um, or to take some of their, our lead candidates and move them, move them faster towards the clinic. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Very good. Um, speaking of lead candidates, one of those lead candidates is uh, per, I, I think the note that, that Ian made is a, is a, is a, an antibody that's aimed at uh, aimed as a at COVID as a, as a COVID therapeutic. Right. So, um, and I'm, I'm curious, I, I want to have that conversation in the context of like where we are with COVID right now. Um, 
what what gives you the confidence like where we are with COVID right now, which you know, it's always a situation in flux and fall is always a, you know, a, a time full of anxiety and anticipation as we round our corner into what was traditionally the flu season. Now maybe we're going to be calling it the COVID slash flu season. We don't know where, you know, what, what might pop up next, but by and large, you know, it's a, it's a pandemic that's tamed under, under, you know, considerable control compared to where it was before. Um, a, there was a great rush of, of companies uh, that, that that came to that space with with uh, prophylactic vaccine and also many many companies coming at it with uh, therapeutic candidates. Um, so what gives you the confidence now at this juncture in the game to continue that you know down that path around a COVID therapeutic and antibody COVID therapeutic? Yeah, so it's it's really driven by patient need. So it, uh, so we this is a space that we uh, when the pandemic broke out we realize antibodies could really be used effectively, uh, certainly as a therapy, and that's proven to be the case. So the antibodies have been one of the most uh, approved classes of therapies early on. Um, and even though the pandemic has, is certainly under more control right now, there's a group of population uh, individuals in the immunocompromised um, population that are still highly vulnerable to COVID. So these are folks that are generally 65 plus and have multiple comorbidities. So that's the population that has very little to no protection. So generally because their immune system is either suppressed by, for example, medications that they're on or just by other comorbidities, they're unable to mount a, an immune response to even vaccines. Mm-hmm. So uh, they're a high risk for COVID. They're roughly 25 million Americans in this category. So, and then there are a lot of new variants coming. So this group of individuals has really very little to no protection because the vaccines are going to be largely, they, they can't mount an immune response against the vaccines. Uh, small molecule drugs, uh, generally a lot more toxic than antibodies. So you can't really take them on a daily basis. So what's left are, neutralizing antibodies that could be used as a pre-exposure prophylactic. So, so that's what we have. So we have a cocktail of two antibodies that has a long half-life, can last in circulation up to six months, that is effective against actually every single Omicron variant to date, and also is predicted to work against future variants such as BQ1 and 1.1 as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, that can give protection to this class of uh, immunocompromised individuals. And there's nothing else out there right now. Um, there was Shield, which is from AstraZeneca, um, but that's not expected to be effective against the next wave of variants. Where, where, so give us an update on where that candidate is uh, from a clinical standpoint. Are there, are there two, two COVID-19 uh, candidates there at APRO, aren't there? Am I, am I mistaken? Yeah, yes. So the cocktail is currently late-stage preclinical. Uh, so mm. I think we're, we're looking at various strategies to get that across the finish line quickly, given the COVID season that's right around the corner. Right. Um, so we're examining all the options right now. There's a, I mean, you know, when the, when the vaccine came out, you know, there was a, everyone was excited. No, no one wants to see the vaccine fail. Everyone wants to see the vaccine succeed. Right. It was a held as a, as a, as a miracle of modern science, the speed at which we were able to develop this mRNA vaccine and, and get it approved. Um, and, and I, you know, I'm always hesitant to have this discussion because I don't want to detract from that regardless, right. If, in any situation, uh, no matter, you know, safety aside, obviously safety is paramount, but efficacy, durability, all those questions that have yet to be answered and improvements that are yet to be made. Uh, it was obviously great, great work on the part of the life sciences community to get that vaccine out there. But, you know, in retrospect, right, I think we can all recognize that uh, the the hope of the ambition initially was that durability would be stronger and that it would stop transmission and that it would, you know, per- perform a little bit better, I guess, generally than it, than it has in, in retrospect. Um, now, obviously, like I said, we all, we all want to see that thing work in the face of such a, a deadly and devastating pandemic. Uh, but at the same time, for a company like yours, the fact that it, it 
doesn't quite work as, you know, it's not going to, the, the vaccine is not anytime soon, no vaccine anytime soon is going to eradicate this thing, i.e. polio. Um, you know, there's a market opportunity. So what, what's your, what's your take on that? Has the, I guess the, for, for your company and others who are working in the COVID therapeutic space, ha, has the, I guess, performance of the vaccine to date strengthened in a meaningful way from a business standpoint? Your business strategy, your business, your business mission, has it contributed to success in the funding, you know, in the funding world and attracting talent and that kind of thing? Like, I guess what, it's a lot of words, but like, what's, what's the impact of this, uh, you know, the, the vaccine effort that, mm, you know, we all hoped it would be a little bit stronger. What's the impact on your business? Uh, well, I think, I think, I mean, I think, I think there's been a lot of confusion about <laughs> About vaccines, right? So when people think vaccines, uh, they think one shot, like po- the measles or polio, and you're protected mm-hmm. for the rest of your life. It's turning out to be a seasonal kind of disease, right? So multiple variants, waves, not not too dissimilar to flu, but more deadly. Yeah. So so the, there's a whole confusion about the word vaccine, right? So I so I think that number one, uh, but number two, I think the vaccines to date have been effective at preventing hospitalization. So that that's actually been quite good. The data has been pretty, pretty outstanding. Um, but it's not going to be the be all and end all. So there's going to be, we just talked about immunocompromised patients who may not respond to vaccines. So it's, that's not going to treat or protect everybody. So I think there's going to be confusion around that, right? So why, why are some people still getting COVID and maybe getting hospitalized? or even worse, like, like dying from it. Um, and it's, it goes to illustrate why we need a multi-pronged approach overall as a society to really get everything under control. When you're striving to excel in a new arena, the best guides are the ones already doing it well. The business of biotech brings those voices forward to help new and emerging biopharmas turn their innovations like mRNA and cell and gene therapies into clinical realities. Tune in and subscribe for insights on hiring, regulatory, and other need-to-know topics for biopharma leaders. The podcast is brought to you in collaboration with Cytiva. Check out their resources at cytiva.com backslash emerging biotech. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A.com backslash emerging biotech. Because vaccines can really be used by everyone, uh, we're going to need neutralizing antibody cocktails. The small molecules are actually helpful as well. They're very convenient, even though there's a little more toxicity. Uh, it, it illustrates that we need multiple different types of treatments to be able to get, get all this under control. Yeah. Yeah. And then yeah, you got view it. Yeah. Yeah, man. So, yeah, our view is this COVID pandemic is, uh, it's evolving, right? So, and we, we've seen that, you know, from the early days, um, you know, with the wild heavy strain of uh, in Wuhan, it was basically way more deadly than the Omicron. Uh, you know, it basically mutating into something that was more transmissible and less deadly. And it's going to continue to mutate. We just don't know which direction it's going to go. And so it can go, you know, maybe it's going to get even more benign and, you know, turn into something even less, uh, less dangerous. Or it could go the opposite direction. And so, you know, I think as a society, I don't think we should let our guard down. Um, and that's sort of what drives sort of our uh, kind of continued focus on being able to kind of create the best possible therapy for COVID. Yeah. Uh, because at some point, uh, you know, this thing is smart, right? So, and it's nature and it's, uh, you know, we just don't know what's going to do. And so, um, and, you know, us like the vaccine makers, uh, you got to be prepared and basically you got to be able to kind of, have uh, multiple tools tools in the arsenal, as as Ian said. Yeah, no, it makes sense. I mean, you you know your point about preparation and and agility. You know, we obviously we were unprepared. We were unprepared for the pandemic when it when it made its ravage and incredibly fast spread across the globe. Um, and there's a lot of work done being done right now in the vaccine and therapeutic spaces to you know correct correct that position, make sure that we're on more solid footing uh, when the next one comes along. And it sounds to me like that's kind of part and parcel to what Abpros is doing from a therapeutic standpoint in terms of that um, development uh, agility, right? The the ability to spin up, you know, in, in a in a relative hurry, 
uh, a new antibody to respond to things like COVID. Is that so? And uh, and we're gonna. I want to pivot. Um, I want to pivot here shortly into your oncology portfolio. But you know, g- given the experience w- with COVID, um, would you consider that sort of a a, a strong a strong position for APRO? Are you, in a, are you in a good spot right now? Should, not should, but when the next pandemic approaches to be able to leverage what you learned through the COVID experience and the speed of your development platform to to be in a good good place to respond? Is that kind of part of the strategy? Yeah, no, I think um, COVID was definitely a test of the, the company, right? Can we respond quickly, mm-hmm. right? And can we get to potentially an approval quickly? Uh, it was a test of, all functional areas of the company. Uh, it's it's made our company, like you said, uh, more agile and, and extremely efficient. Uh, it was really had all, all cylinders had to be firing at the same time to really yeah. get something done quickly. Uh, and that's something where we've leveraged across the board now, like oncology, all the programs. We, we have. It was a test of all functional areas. Uh, make sure they're working and they work efficiently, quickly. And then the team working well together too, as well. So, so I think all that's really brought us um, a lot more efficiency and agility, as you say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like like public in public uh, an era of public private partnership and and federal funding. I mean, you know, we saw record levels of federal funding for for companies like AbPro and others, particularly in the vaccine space. You know, speed is now uh, highly valued and 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 rewarded, like monetarily. Rewarded, and it's sort of an interesting paradox, given that you know, in spaces like I mean, obviously, you guys aren't manufacturing vaccines, but even therapeutic development, um, you know, I mean, f- fifteen years to develop a, a vaccine was not just the norm. It was like, oh yeah, well, bank on it. We're not going to expect to even come close to putting this thing into mass populations of human beings until we've got fifteen years of of data, right? So, like, and that was sort of a regulatory driven thing slow steady you know make the slow and steady wins the race and now you know a lot of the same federal agencies are going like oh a company like abpro they're spinning out new antibodies in two to three months and you know running really important assays to figure out what they do and how they work we're going to reward that it's it's an interesting paradox i think when you guys uh getting back to that oncology point so the work that you've done in infectious disease like covid how is that informing uh, the development of your your antibody candidates. How how you've got like what six or eight ant, ant, uh, immuno oncology candidates? Yeah, well, um, yeah, I think the official number. Yeah, we have a number of them. So yeah, different stages. Six days sounds sounds about right. Yeah, uh, because we have some in discovery as well. Um, but yeah, it's been super informative. How to how to do science at an accelerated pace. So I think that's. The key we can cycle through the targets faster now mm-hmm. um so that allows us to look at more targets on a, broad, a broader scale and do it and i think it's kind of a bit of a shots on goal kind of thing you want to go through many candidates quickly test them and pick the ones that are most promising to move forward so that that, that type of process actually helps the portfolio across the board yeah yeah you, let, let's talk a little bit about some of those uh, indications in immuno-oncology that you guys are pursuing. Why don't you give me a sort of a rundown of, of the specific indications you're pursuing and, and why? Yeah, so the theme is really looking for very specific tumors that have strong markers that are specific to that particular kind of cancer where we can bring an immune cell to the tumor. So it's very specific, and we're leveraging mostly human immune uh human immune system to do that so it's going to be a more natural type of treatment as opposed to chemo or other types of non-naturally occurring uh, treatments that are out there mm-hmm. uh, so the so the pipeline is across some of the most i would say prevalent forms of cancer so certainly breast cancer is one of them gastric pancreatic we have a program uh for also liver cancer, that's in the, in the pipeline as well. Uh, so anywhere where we, we can find a very specific tumor marker, and there's certainly some very interesting markers that are continuing to be uh, to be developed nowadays, uh, we, we can pursue with our platform. Yeah, the cross, 
Yeah, yeah just, Eugene, I was just going to say, Ian's Ian's been uh, he's been stealing the mic here, so I want to pause for a minute and give you an opportunity to weigh in. Yeah, the crux of this is really how do we leverage the body's natural immune system to be able to fight cancer. So, you know, for a few years ago, we basically heard a lot about uh, CAR T cells. Yeah, I'm sure you've uh, had some of these folks on your podcast. Um, you know, essentially, CAR T is uh, be able to take a person's immune cells take them out of the body, essentially then, you know, alter it in some way where it's specific towards the cancer and be able to use your body's immune system to fight it. You know, the manufacturing cost on that is, you know, millions of dollars per person. So the cost benefit for being able to treat, you know, cancer patients on a broad-based basis is not quite there. And so, you know, even uh, companies like Novartis, you know, they've really struggled with, you know, their uh, CAR-T therapies in terms of being able to make it kind of broadly, broadly applicable. Mm-hmm. And so in our case, um, essentially by leveraging this uh, bi-specific approach uh, where you're essentially activating uh, sort of T-cells in the person's body without uh, being able to alter, uh, you get the same benefits as CAR-T, um, but without sort of this complexity of manufacturing. So now you're talking, you know, it's, it's a pure infusion uh, and be able to administer a, like a traditional drug uh, gives you that scalability, but at the same time, uh, you've kind of bypassed sort of some of these complexities that came with some of these earlier therapies. And so simplistic way of thinking about uh, sort of the approach that we've taken at APRO is, hey, you know, let's uh, take what's wonderful about CAR-T and let's basically put it into an ID bag mm-hmm. uh, that's accessible to everyone um, at a lower cost. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, as, as I mentioned uh, from the outset here, that approach has, has, uh, has, been, has been getting some attention. Um, in the form of, as I mentioned, a pretty great big giant deal with uh, with Celtrion. That so I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you what I think I know. So that that deal is uh, specific to ABP 102, your antibody for HER2 positive breast, gastric, and pancreatic cancer. Is that correct? Is that kind of the the crux of that uh, relationship with Celtrion? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us about that. Like just to, I, I we'll start at the high level. Tell us about the partnership, how it came about. Yeah, so this is a great partnership. We're excited about it. Uh, so Celtrion uh, came about through a one of our board members who is actually based over in Korea. Uh, so we had an initial dialogue, and then we, we realized they had really complementary global capabilities, uh, and they had a herd to uh, experience, biosimilar that they experienced with. So mm-hmm. certainly they knew the space, and they have integrated capabilities all the way from preclinical manufacturing all the way to commercialization and and also recently they've been getting approvals um, in, in other areas as well so that really caught our attention and it, we, we had a dialogue uh, they were very excited about our molecule partly because our ABP 102 has a very wide therapeutic window wider than I would say most other bi-specific antibodies so that gives you flexibility in the clinic for dosing and we had a series of discussions and then formed a partnership. And the, the basic of, uh, parts of the partnership is that essentially they'll be contributing all the development funding and clinical funding for the program. Hmm. Uh, so that will enable this molecule to move along very quickly all the way to eventually to patients. Yeah. So that's why, um, you know, as, as, a, as a small company, that's very attractive. So that's... That really accelerates the, the development of the molecule. Yeah, that's a, the question. I, my follow-up question was going to be that: what is what does a deal of that magnitude mean to a, a, a small company? Like, is it's you know it's probably hard to hard to kind of um, I don't know put a number or, or a metric to it. Maybe it's easier to put a number or a metric to it than it is to put put sort of a, a you know sort of a gut gut reaction to the the future of the mission, sort of the culture of the mission, the you know the the the, the great big things that Apro wants to achieve. Um, but just give me some sense for that. Like what was it what was it like at the I don't know, lunchtime with your brother when it became you know, a sure thing known to you guys, you know, at the dinner table and you're like, holy holy smokes, like Celtrion's behind this and, and, and putting quite a bit of money where it's, where its mouth is. Yeah, no, we, we were definitely uh, excited. The team really worked hard for a long period of time to get this across the finish line. Yeah. Uh, it's certainly transformative for the company. Um, 
and most importantly, it allows this molecule to potentially get the patients faster. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think part of it is also they've done a sort of a rigorous due diligence on the molecule as well. And so I think, you know, in order to sign up a deal of this magnitude, uh, you know, really had to kind of gone through the ropes. Uh, and, you know, the standard biotech is you'd really have to be able to sort of test out the molecule outside your own facilities. And you have to be able to, you know, let someone play around with this thing and see if it really works. And so uh, it's sort of a major external validation of the science, um, as well as the approach that we've taken, particularly for this molecule, because it's, uh, it was specifically engineered, again, as you mentioned, to have this wider therapeutic window. So one of the issues of, of uh, CAR-T, as well as sort of uh, any of these uh, T-cell engagement approaches, is that you want to be careful of toxicity and make sure the approach is safe. So you want to make sure you don't kill any normal cells. Yeah. Make sure you target cancer cells. And so being able to have a big discriminating window for cancer versus non-cancerous uh, and not be able to target the person's own normal natural tissues is really sort of the theme of uh, ABP 102. And so that sort of tuned approach uh, to T-cell engager is something that uh, we're going to see, you know, be more important as we go forward. And so I think it, it was sort of a major validation of that particular approach. Give us some, um, I guess, give it, give us some advice around, so you're the small guy, you're the small guy doing, doing something, uh, do, doing big work and developing a, a molecule that's generating interest from big multi-billion dollar global corporations like Celtrion. Um, so g- give us some, get some, get some insight to other, the leaders of other new and emerging kind of small, small players who are working on unique uh, novel molecules that might attract similar interest into how to engage kind of how to move into a deal of that magnitude without, uh, you know, without, without being taken advantage of, for instance, or without losing, you know, losing IP. <laughs> because quite frankly, like if you're not prepared, you know, you just said it, Eugene, like we, you know, we have this asset. Um, and uh, before we start talking about striking deals, that have the you know the the b alien uh, associated with them, they're going to want to play with the asset. They're going to want to know the asset. Um, so you've got to be careful around that. I'm, I'm I'm assuming. I don't you know. I've, obviously, I've never done it. So I'm asking you. Like, what what are some of the things going into a situation like that that you kind of need to be prepared for? Uh, boxes that need to be checked, I's and T's that need to be dotted and crossed. Yeah. So you got to make sure your intellectual property is secured well, um, well ahead in advance of any of these interactions. Uh, and so, you know, for us, you know, we have a strong belief inside the organization of basically getting as much intellectual property on all the work that we've done um, as kind of quick as possible. And so we also have uh, one of the most prolific inventors in biotech on our board directors, you know, Bob Langer, who's also the founder of Moderna. Mm-hmm. And so we constantly uh, get reminded. Uh, that uh, the importance of IP is uh, sort of at the center of pretty much everything that you have, because at the end of the day, this drug is going to go into patients. It's going to go into, you know, essentially it's a shareable molecular entity at, at some point, right? If you're successful. And so uh, being able to protect basically, you know, what's in that formulation, what's in that sequence uh, ultimately, or that general approach is going to be super, super critical because that's pretty much all you got. Yeah. Yeah, where is that? Uh, what does that deal look like in practice right now? Like, if you if you look at that, you know, the deal happened. What what did I say back in? Was it June? Was it June? I think that it was kind of announced. Is that correct? Uh, Celtrium was announced uh, September. September. Okay. Oh yeah. So I mean, yeah, we're talking fresh, fresh. Um, what? So it, ha, like, if you you look around the office right now, you look around the lab, you look around what's going on at Abpro. Can you uh, like? Are, are you able to recognize like that deal uh, in action right now, or is it is it kind of too soon? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's it's really injected a lot of um, resources into the into the ABP one hundred two. So I think the team is extremely excited about that. Uh, we have uh, obviously we're focusing on the science right now. That that's that's the most important part. Um, yeah, we're focused on getting it in, that molecule to the next stage, which would be to progress through the clinic quickly. Good stuff. Well, c- congratulations on that deal. Uh, I, just a couple more questions for you. And this has been a tough, <laughs> tough conversation because as I said from the outset, uh, you guys have a very wide and and deep uh, 
pipeline. So when we start talking about these candidates, I'm moving from COVID to oncology, and now I'm about to move on to wet age related macular degeneration because that's I think your 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 final I guess uh, I- indication is in that space. Um, you're developing a bispecific antibody for for that indication. Um, so just curious about the, the the strategy there and why antibodies are perhaps the the right path for uh, ophthalmology indications like that. Yeah, so this is an interesting one because it was uh, it was sort of one of those uh, fortuitous uh, or serendipitous kind of uh, pivots. Mm. And I think that's always uh, something important to discuss in biotech because ultimately, as you progress down the development pathway, originally we had a, a VEGFN2 molecule that was targeted towards cancer. Um, so basically anti-angiogenesis uh, agent. And so as we started looking at this more in the lab, as well as in some of our in vitro experiments, you know, we basically, uh, you know, based on some of the dosing and whatever, uh, you know, manufacture of the molecule, we basically came to the conclusion, hey, you know, this would be uh, sort of better suited for basically a different indication. And that's where we sort of adapted this molecule to uh, wet age related macular degeneration. And have seen sort of some stupendous kind of data, uh, you know, on on the molecule in that direction. Um, so we took a pretty open mind, you know, and was able to review the data um, and didn't make any really kind of, you know, presumptions on basically, hey, we're going to try to fit this into, you know, what we originally uh, got this molecule for. Um, but really it was to take a look at the data and see basically, Hey, you know, what is, you know, how, how does this meet sort of the clinical need as well as the business need and where can we actually make sort of a substantial clinical uh, difference for patients. And so, uh, you know, ABP 201, uh, which is uh, this particular molecule um, basically fit that criteria. And, you know, even to this date, it's actually been uh, one of the exciting programs uh, because it's a huge amount of need unmet need. You know, there's there's a few agents out there which uh, basically prolong eyesight. Uh, but, uh, you know, what we've seen is if you can target two particular pathways, you know, which you can do with these bispecific molecules, now you can go and uh, you can uh, prolong eyesight even longer. Um, and that's sort of the uh, aim of the program. And it's, uh, you know, at least in preclinical studies, it's actually looking fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, you you answered uh, one of the next questions I had for you there, Eugene. I was, you know, I was, as I mentioned, your your pipeline is extremely diverse, um, and I was I was going to ask if that diversity of that pipeline is strategic. You mentioned you used the word serendipity, so that answers part of the question. I'm sure there's a a balance, right? A blend of uh, st- strategic, many shots on goal indications that uh, you know have healthy healthy meaning large uh, pa- patient populations. Um, but also taking advantage of serendipity when when it presents itself. Uh, where does it go from here? When you look at the the pipeline, the indications you're going after, you know the great deal with with Celtrion, the position the company's in right now, which is a really great place to be. Um, I guess you know w- without uh, risking yourselves getting in trouble with the IR and PR police, what kind of forward forward looking statements would you make about the development of the Abpro pipeline? Yeah, I think there's a lot of, uh, I mean, at core, you know, there's this um, wonderful antibody platform, which is leveraged in the bispecific antibodies. And so I think that's sort of the crux of the tool, so to speak. And so, uh, you know, there's particular synergies that we've kind of now, um, you know, or expertise or know-how or intellectual property uh, that we've now developed that's actually very deep in this whole immunology space, uh, which has allowed, to, allowed us to uh, cut this kind of wonderful Celtrion deal. And so we anticipate to continue leveraging uh, sort of some of the, what's made that successful into other cancer programs. So I think that's pretty clear. Um, but with that said, I think this platform is broadly applicable. And so being able to not rule out sort of applications and indications, and that, that's always one of the difficult balancing acts in running any of these biotech companies is that you always want to make sure that uh, your focus, but at the same time, you want you don't want to shut out your opportunities that might actually come along, and so yeah. you, have, you have to be pretty judicious. And I think that's where having a good board, uh, as well as a good management team, uh, comes into play because ultimately you can make those decisions, and ultimately the investors that we partner with uh, they trust us to make those decisions and to make them correctly. And so, uh, and that's sort of I think what's led to the success of the company, and we'll continue uh, sort of driving the pipeline uh, down the road. Yeah. Good stuff. 
Good stuff, Ian. Anything to add there, Ian? No, I think that, I think you're right. It's it's kind of like a symphony. All, all the parts need to work together. Yeah. Um, you know, if the science is working and the, and the platform's working, that's going to yield a lot of molecules that we can look at. And certainly, the team has to work well together. It has to be everything has to work well together. And then obviously, relationships with business partners, investors. So once all that's coming along, uh, that all supports the scientific activity uh, and the ability to. Excellent science is what drives everything. Yeah. I don't know, uh, Ian, if I failed to mention this, but we do produce a, a video version of this this podcast. And before we move any further with it, I, I'm, I'm looking at the, the faded um, dry erase board behind you. And I just want you to turn around, take a look at that, and make sure that there aren't any trade secrets uh, or, you know, <laughs> and, sure. any, yeah. make sure that none of that science that I see written behind you is going to get you guys <laughs> in trouble before we let this video go. <laughs> um, what haven't I asked you guys? What haven't I asked you guys that you're like, well, boy, he really should ask us this because it's kind of central to our our story, part and parcel with what we're doing here at Apro. Well, you've asked a bunch of great questions. I think um, you know you've really kind of given us the opportunity to present uh, what we're doing doing here at Apro in sort of a great a great way. Um, and I think ultimately, I think for us, it's I think for people listening to this podcast, I think it's important that they know that there's a group of folks out there that, um, you know, like me and my brother, you know, as well as our entire team, you know, that's, we're fully dedicated to making a difference for patients. Um, and I think ultimately that's sort of the strong driving motivation, um, that allows us to, you know, you talked about some of the personal stories and things like that, but, mm-hmm. you know, it's things like that, as well as like people that, you know, and, uh, you know, from my, uh, sort of a historical kind of, uh, interfacing with, um, uh, you know, patients, you know, it's, yeah, at different stages of, you know, kind of clinical treatment, there's not enough that we could possibly do for these patients. Um, so, you know, we might think, hey, you know, if we, uh, you know, incru- include the survival, in- increase the survival benefit by additional 18 months, that's good enough. It's not good enough. And so I think every day that we go to work, I think we're highly motivated to be able to uh, extend um, and be able to hopefully transform some of these uh, ways that we treat um, treat patients. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's uh, I I like that. That's a I, I like that uh, that commitment, that resolve, uh, Doctor Chan. That's that's awesome, and I I hope that I have the opportunity to interview you guys again a little bit further down the road. Uh, maybe, you know, when there's more to talk about clinically, um, especially on some of those oncology candidates. Um, you guys are doing great work. I'll be cheering for you, and I appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Thank you so much, Matt. We appreciate it as well. Yeah. Great. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Matt. Good time talking with you guys. So that's Ab Pros, Eugene and Ian Chan. I'm Matt Piller, and this is the Business of Biotech. We're produced by Bioprocess Online in partnership with Cytiva. Check us out at bioprocessonline.com and check out Cytiva at cytiva.com backslash emerging biotech. Both sites offer troves of content dedicated to emerging and early stage biotechs. And if you like tuning into conversations with biotech innovators like the Chan brothers, make sure you subscribe to the pod. We drop every Monday and we'd love to hear from you. So leave us a comment or a review. And in the meantime, as always, thanks for listening.